Church, you may be seated, and if you haven't already, open up to Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Romans chapter 15, verse 8 through 13 will be our primary text today. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, grateful to get to open up God's Word with you. Uh, recently, in 2004, Loyola University, just up north a little ways from here, published a faculty paper uh, comparing the difference between optimism and hope. Uh, while these terms, I think for many of us, we use them interchangeably, they were trying to nail down a distinction. Psychologists concluded that hope focuses more directly on the personal attainment of specific goals, whereas optimism focuses more broadly on the expected quality of future outcomes in general. What's this mean? In other words, optimism is focused on a particular outcome while hope centers on something that endures and is even unthreatened by uh, certain outcomes or unforeseen circumstances. So while the optimist always has to insist good will happen or good can possibly happen, the one who has hope insists that all shall be well no matter what happens, even if something bad goes down. See, optimism then is often disconnected from reality, that regardless of what's going on, it has to get better, it will get better. And hope, though, avoiding the Atlantic, and he hosts a popular, really helpful podcast called How to Build a Life. He and Oprah are just about to come out with a book, so that's cool too. Um, And he reflected on this particular research from Loyola. He wrote then on the same subject, and he observes that having hope is not just nice to have. In other words, it's not just a nice luxury for some human beings, and the rest of us can just, you know, stick with optimism. He says that research indicates that hopeful people, in contrast to pessimists or positive people, depending on which side of that you may fall on, um, they are more productive at work, they're physically healthier, and they are more equipped equipped rather for academic achievement. So hope has this transformative power and it's indispensable and an indispensable part of being whole, of being a flourishing person or community. So hope is not a luxury, Brooks is arguing here, but it is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be a whole person. It's much more than thinking happy thoughts, depending on which cartoons you grew up with, right? It's so much more than just wishful thinking, and it's so much more in the modern day of manifesting your best life. So what exactly is hope? How do we live with hope, and what's the basis for what we'll describe as Christian hope or Christian faith? And why is it any different, or is it any different than what the psychologist at Loyola or the podcaster Brooks has to say and what they are reporting? So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about hope. I want to talk about why optimism will always lead you to disappointment, if not delusionment, disillusionment rather, and discontent, and why hope, God promises, and he says in Romans chapter 5, will never put you to shame. Hope will never put you to shame. Here's how we'll walk through Paul's lesson today. We'll look at the substance of hope, then the evidence of hope, and then lastly, the result of hope. So the substance, the evidence, and then thirdly, finally, the result of hope. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we all need hope. Each of us have different personal stories and relationships with living life in a hopeless kind of way or maybe looking news, social media, or maybe something silly like looking at our football team yesterday and just feeling hopeless. Whatever it might be, God, it is clear 
that to live the full and flourishing life that we are all longing for, it requires this fundamental ingredient of hope. And so wherever we're beginning uh, this journey, whether we are skeptical of this entire Christian project or we've been following you for a long time, would you help us to unlearn false ideas of hope today and center on the truth and the beauty of the hope that we see offered in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Um, Because whatever is just a crutch, we don't want to be held up. We want to be held fast. We don't just want something to feel good. We want something that is good. We don't just want something that gets us through We want something that endures, not just in this life, but in the age to come. And so would you help us to recognize that? Would you teach us that? Would you change us on the spot? spot? Would you reorient our hearts and our minds to the truth and beauty of your gospel, your good news today? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we got introduced uh, in Romans to this idea of hope way back in Romans chapter 4. And Paul uh, did that. He wrote about, Rome, or wrote, wrote about hope, rather, back in chapter 4 through the story of Abraham. If you remember, he says this in Romans 4, verse 18. In hope, he, that's Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. If you remember, God told Abraham he was going to be a father, which for many people, really wonderful news. For Abraham, it was confounding because he was almost 100 years old. So he had a really hard time orienting himself around the reality of what God was saying to him and what he was promising. And not just that he would be a father, but a father of many nations, many different peoples. See, optimism, especially spiritual optimism, because I think we Christians have gotten really good at thinking happy thoughts and being optimists, especially when we show up in public, right? It teaches us that we need to think these kind of glad thoughts and act like we don't have doubts, right? Act like we're not wrestling with it. God said I'm going to be a dad? Dope. I believe it, absolutely, when all of reality seems to be suggesting that that's going to be a problem. See, optimism has to disconnect from reality and feelings and thoughts about reality. Yet what Paul tells us is that instead of just shallow positivity of giving us a picture of Abraham you know, who's just really excited about it. Awesome, I'm going to be a dad. I'll start scheduling the baby shower and all of this. He really wrestles with this, and he reaches not for optimism, but for hope. He reaches for hope. See, while optimism has to bury questions beneath smiles, hope welcomes and even grows with curiosity. Questions are not uh, foes, if you will. They're not enemies of hope. They're wonderful allies. They help us to find the deeper root, the deeper soil of faith. So hope in the original language here in the New Testament is the verb. The verb is is ellipsis, or elpis, excuse me, and the noun is elpida. And these two words find the same root word in this idea of profound certainty. Profound certainty. So deep assurance has always been a part of the Christian story. This is not a new thing that now we are wrestling with in the 21st century. Really important that we always keep that in mind. We've got this heritage of faith. We're about to read about it. If you're following along in our Hebrews reading series through the week, we're about to read about this hall of faith. These men and women who have walked long before us, battled similar things that you and I have battled, and yet constantly reached for hope and for faith. In fact, Historian Kyle Harper explains that one of the reasons that the early church was able to endure through generations of unthinkable suffering, mistreatment, and violence was that they learned, he says, to orient their lives toward the larger story, the cosmic story, the story of eternity. 
They, in other words, they didn't think things were going to get better, at least not in this life. In fact, they were sort of resolved that things are not going to get better. So they're not putting on optimism, like things are going to get better. Don't, don't worry. Be happy, right? And just listen to Bob Marley and you'll feel better. They, that's not where they go. They, they go deeply within the reality of their terrible situation and they cling to a bigger story. They face the reality of suffering with this ethic that suffering was and is momentary. This is one of the challenging things about suffering. Whenever we suffer, we almost always think, this is going to last forever. I am never going to get out of this. This is always going to be a problem, right? And so what the Christian story does, it provides us context. It provides us a bigger picture of ultimate reality. See, they understood that God was greater than their suffering, and he was even using their suffering for their good and his glory. Abraham then faces this reality of his old age and, and biology, right, with this ethic, this bigger story of who God was, who God is, his power that goes beyond comprehension. He reaches for hope. He reaches, you see, for profound certainty, not disconnected from reality, but a deeper appreciation for what is true and beautiful, the circumstances that he might face or the outcomes he may be worried about. He clings to something that is truer. I, I want to live like that. I want to live like that. I wonder about you. See, it's this idea of hope that Paul then begins to bring back in Romans chapter 15. He begins this treatment of hope with a reflection on the substance of hope. That is, the object of hope. What or who is the foundation of our lives? Or what assurance? What is actually the assurance that you and I can build our life upon? Look at Romans chapter 5, rather 15, verse 8. The very beginning of the portion that we read. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. Here is the fundamental idea we must understand about how the Christian scriptures talk about hope. Hope is not an idea. Hope is a person. This is vital if we're to understand and build out an idea of what hope actually looks like, what it actually is. Hope is not an idea, but hope is a person. Christ himself is the substance of our hope. More to the point, Paul says that the Son of God in the flesh is our hope. See, the Lord of the universe became a servant. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ emptied himself. Son of God in eternity past emptied himself by taking the form of of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so when Paul says Christ became a servant in Romans chapter 15, he's not only saying that the Son of God became a human being, he's also saying that as a human being, he died and his death was substitutionary. He died for us. He died the death you and I deserved by our sin, by our brokenness. This is why the fact that Christ became a servant is the substance of our hope. See, he's not simply wishful thinking. He's not a spiritual crutch. Christianity is not optimism. Christianity is not just a positive way of thinking and a helpful, happy narrative that protects us from the tragedies or difficult questions of life. We have hope, no matter what our circumstance and situation might be or how bad it might get. What the gospel tells us is that in Christ, we're safe. In Christ, we're protected. In Christ, we're forgiven. In Christ, we have a future that is not uncertain, but is sealed. We're good. In Christ, the truest and most important things about you, my sister and my brother, are secure. 
No need, no suffering, no pain, no loss, no devastation can undo what Christ has done and what He has sealed. This is not just optimism. It's not just a nice way of thinking. This is not disconnected from reality. This is a deep appreciation grounded in the truth and beauty of reality. Or as Dr. Timothy Keller often explained, that the Christian hope is historical, it's reasonable, and it is intellectually satisfying. It's historical, it's reasonable, and it's intellectually satisfying. For example, let's think about the resurrection. The resurrection might be the thing that many critics of our faith, many critics of Jesus himself would say, okay, I'll give you the Sermon on the Mount. That is a wonderful message, really helpful, really healing, some good ideas in there for us to adopt. But resurrection for real, that a dead person came back to life. This may be the thing that you're like, nah, I'm good. Like I love the happy thoughts, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself, good. Jesus died and came back to life, that doesn't make any sense. Let's think about it. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth from Ephesus about AD 55. Why is that important? That's only about 30 years from the death of Christ. Less than, less than 30 years from the death and resurrection of Christ. And now listen to him as he talks to Corinth, as he speaks to real living people about the resurrection. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So he's saying, Everything that the scriptures have been preparing you for was preparing you for Christ. Everything that the Bible testifies about is fulfilled. We find elsewhere that Jesus is the yes and amen to all of the promises of God. That's awesome, but now hear what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 still. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, in his one like bout to be humble in all of his New Testament writing, he appeared also to me. Okay, so Paul, again, 30 years after uh, the death, resurrection of Jesus, after he was walking on earth, claims not only that Jesus died for our sins, but that he rose on the third day. And then he lists people by name. He says he appeared to these people and the 12 disciples, and then over 500 people saw the resurrected Lord, most of whom are still alive. Now, why is that important? What is Paul saying to those in Corinth? If you don't believe me, go talk to them. You know them. They're in your community. You've heard this story. 500 people is going to make the news. This is so intellectually satisfying that there is no better explanation than this actually happened. Now, this is bold enough, but let's think about it some more. Jews didn't believe in bodily resurrection. This was not a part of their worldview. It wasn't a part of their theology. It wasn't a part of their doctrine. Nor were they oriented towards superstition or personality, like this cult of personality that we're familiar with, right? or the law being messed with. Yet almost overnight, the events of Jesus' death and resurrection caused a mass conversion of countless Jewish people. Not only so, but Jesus had a ton of enemies. Do you know this? A ton of enemies. They executed him. The last thing they would want is for a bunch of people to think that he rose from the dead. We see this in the Gospels, how they tried to squash these resurrection rumors. Yet at every opportunity, to easily debunk Jesus' resurrection. The Roman authorities, the powerhouse of the day, the Jewish elites who had a grip on the religious community itself, and the masses 
of first century Asia Minor people who heard what Paul said and read his writings could not stop the church from growing. The one thing that squares the events of history and the only answer which is most intellectually satisfying is that Christ became a servant, that Christ died, that Christ, Christ rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death, and then he appeared to Paul, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the twelve, and then all of the disciples, or all of the apostles, and then to 500 people and even more. The only thing that makes sense is he really, truly, actually is the substance of our hope. Are you with me? That that really happened. This is not wishful thinking. If it's wishful thinking, stop believing now. Because a lie that gives you hope is no hope at all. But a truth that has true substance is revolutionary. So having established this, that Christ and his work is the substance of our hope, now Paul proves it even further. He's going to give us a living, breathing example of why we can believe and trust this substance, this hope, this person. He helps his readers understand how Christ gives us hope by presenting the evidence of hope. Look at verse uh, 8 again. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Okay, so Paul, when he says that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, he's talking about the Jewish people. He's talking about Hebrews or those who identified with the old covenant. Circumcision was a mark of the old covenant, how we believe that baptism is a mark of the new. But by the end of the passage, Paul explains that this was all in order for Gentiles or non-Jewish people, every other people group, every other ethnicity, that they might know and love and follow God too. That's the new covenant of grace. So herein lies the evidence of our hope. Us. You and me. The fact now that a bunch of non-Jewish people, most of us who don't identify with the Jewish culture or don't have Jewish blood, know the power of Christ's inclusive Hope. The fact that we exist together as a multi-ethnic diverse people proves, demonstrates, is evidence for this hope. See, Christ's hope, Paul is saying, is for all people. It's not just for some or one kind of person. The good news is for everyone who believes. You're tracking with me. So the gospel's diversity and the gospel's universality, that it's for anyone and everyone who would believe, this is a primary theme in Romans. Paul even began his letter, if you remember, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? When you and I often battle with being shamed or worried or nervous about people knowing that we follow Jesus, right, or that we believe and trust in the gospel, how could Paul say he's not ashamed? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. He is saying the reason I'm not ashamed of it is because it brings everybody together. It's the only thing that brings everybody together. It's the only thing that we look around and go, there's no other reason that we should all be in the same room and totally good with it if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, right? The diversity is evidence. The plurality, the universality, the bigness of this gospel hope proves its reality. So the hope of Christ is for Jewish people. The hope of Christ is for all the nations. The hope of Christ is for the person who grew up in a religious environment and thinks the more good they do and the more truth they know, that the more loved and acceptable they are. The hope of Christ can be for you. The hope of Christ is for you who didn't grow up in a religious context at all, far from it, and daily battle with the pluralistic world that we live in and the 
central ideas of self-actualization and love and tolerance, the, the hope of Christ is for you. I think that's why this is such good news, because some of us grew up in a really loving home that pointed us to Christ regularly. And what's Paul saying? Christ is for you. Some of us grew up and we daily battled to just know what love looked like. And what's Paul saying? Christ is for you. Some of you have stayed close with Jesus your entire life. Christ is for you. Some of you, this is the first time you've ever darkened the door of a church and it's actually really uncomfortable. Christ is for you. Some of us can't remember the last time we weren't addicted to some sin, the last time we weren't overcome with shame or grief. Paul is saying Christ is for you. Some of us don't even know what we're supposed to do tomorrow or what purpose or meaning we have. Christ is for you. Some of you think you've got your entire future locked up. You've got a PowerPoint illustration or a PowerPoint presentation all locked. This is your plan. Christ is for you. Are you with me, church? Wherever you find yourself on this journey, wherever and however you identify, what Paul is saying, Christ is for you. And that is the evidence of the substance of our hope. There's no other view like this. There's no other power like this that unites every tribe, tongue, nation, gender, income bracket, person, place you come from. Whatever Midwest town, Christ is for you. Whatever country, Christ is for you. This is what Paul keeps saying, and he can't get over it. And one of our great problems is we're kind of over it. We're kind of over it. So he's waking us up that we might see Christ is for you. Some of you have run out of options. That's the only reason you're here. Christ is for you. Some of you are about to experience a devastation tomorrow that you had no idea you would ever face in your life. And in that moment, the hope of the gospel is that Christ is for you in that situation, in that problem, in that pain, in that suffering, in that need. Paul is saying Christ became a servant, in other words, for all kinds of people. Where the church really must repent and where we have gotten off is whenever we have said that Christ is only for this kind of person. Now, we may never say it exactly like that, but we'll shape a culture, we'll shape a small group, we'll shape a ministry that really only has one person in mind. And this is where we need to constant revision as a church because we often can be blind to this. We need help seeing what we cannot see about the ways we are communicating and even organizing church life around one particular kind of person. And so now he proves it. He details this evidence in three different ways, and then he backs it all up by going all over the scriptures to do it, communicating the evidence of our hope. Look again at verse 8. First, he says that Christ's servitude shows God's truthfulness. You see that? To show God's Truthfulness. So through Christ, we see the truth and beauty of God himself. That's why he told the disciples, the disciple Philip actually, in John's gospel, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is why hope is a person, because hope in Christ points us to our heavenly Father. So through Christ, we see God's nature, his quality, his character. Through his service, Christ makes one people out of many, demonstrating the love, power, mercy, grace, and familial affection of a heavenly Father. See, knowing that in Christ we see and can know God, we are given a relationship, a grounding, if you will, for any circumstance that we might face. In other words, when we are faced with challenges and problems, we don't need a solution, a new thing to do. We need to remember who we are, that we are daughters and we are sons of a heavenly Father who doesn't sweat. Sons and daughters of a heavenly father who was not surprised that you didn't get that job or that you got fired. A heavenly father who saw that dock and pay coming. A heavenly father who cares more that your heart is not wrapped up in mammon than your career path goes unbothered. 
right? A heavenly Father who takes care and loves us. So we see this through Christ. Then Paul tells us that Christ became a servant. Why? To confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, those who came before us. You see that? In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. There in verse 8. So when Christ showed up, what, what we learn is that all of the promises of God are fulfilled in him. Whatever God promised in the Old Testament, we see fulfilled in the New. Second Corinthians chapter 1 says all of the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it's through uh, him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. See, God's promises met in Christ are evidence of our hope. Knowing that God's promises are always fulfilled in Christ, we don't have to settle for optimism and wishful thinking. We actually get more familiar with who God is, what he has promised, and how that has been fulfilled in Christ. Lastly, Paul says in verse 9, we're told that Christ became a servant so that the Gentiles would glorify God. See, this new people manifests God's character and proves that his promises are not just for one kind of person or one kind of people, but all peoples. Ephesians 4 says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope and belong to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So God, in his redemption of a diverse people, further gives evidence to this hope that we have. That we are a people who don't have to put on sort of plastic positivity and manifest. We can actually admit it's really hard to be one family. This is really hard. It'd be a lot easier to just be around people who look like me, talk like me, act like me. There are church planting philosophies around such things. It's easier. It's easier to do that. It's a lot harder to say and to look at a community and say not just what is easy to grow quickly, but what reflects the kingdom and heart of God more exactly? Not just what builds something that we can be proud of, but how do we become part of something that looks like God, that points to his quality and character? After he lays these three things out, then Paul canvasses the scriptures, and he connects all these dots for his readers. And his quotes are really intentional. See, the Old Testament is organized in five basic categories. The law, history, wisdom, and then major and minor prophets. Now listen to Paul's references, Romans chapter 15, 9, the second half of 9, on into 12. He says, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Each of those references are a sermon unto themselves, but we will simply say this. First, Paul quotes from 2 Samuel. That's history. Then he quotes from Deuteronomy. That's the law. Next, from a psalm. That's wisdom. And finally, from Isaiah. That's a prophet. So what's Paul doing between the lines? He is saying the entire Old Testament testifies to this hope. The entire Old Testament is not God's word to one people. The entire Old Testament is God preparing his people, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, to welcome the nations. This wasn't a backup plan. This was always the heart of God. At every turn, God has promised, explained, and made a way for Jews and Gentiles to belong and be in a single family of God. That's the evidence of our hope in Christ. Only God could do that. Now we should talk about something. God help us. <laughs> if the substance of our hope is solid and the evidence of our hope fills the pages 
of Scripture, if like the old preacher says, like it's clearly teaching this, right, then why is it that it's so hard to live with hope? If this is, don't you feel frustrated sometimes? Like, I don't know, sometimes I write a sermon or teach or hear a sermon, I go, that seems easy enough. Like, what's the matter with me? You know, why, did, why don't I do that more? Why don't I believe that or trust that? Why are we so prone to settle for things like optimism or positive thinking? Why has the church even become this place where we literally have this reputation? You better put a smile on when you show up to church, and when someone asks, how are you? Don't tell them the truth. Just say, I'm totally happy. God is good. God bless you. Like, we just have all of this language even that sort of plasters on positive sentiment, and no one is being honest about what's going on. Why do we do that? Well, Arthur Arthur Brooks believes it's because we have not made a home for hope. Emily Dickinson uh, had this vision of hope. She actually uh, conceived of hope as a bird, and she once wrote that perches in, perches in the soul and sings the tune without words. Brooks thinks about this, and then he adds, hope requires that we make a nest for it and put out some tasty bird seeds too. If we work for it, and it indeed, indeed alightens, alights in our hearts, there's no sweeter song in a dissonant world. So, we don't have hope because we have not made a home for hope. If that's true, I'd like to offer a slight revision. I think a home for hope has been created within every human heart. The philosopher Blaise Pascal used to talk about this God-shaped hole in every human heart, and I think that's what Scripture testifies to as well. But here's the issue, and here's what we must contend with, is that hope's home is almost often, or is almost always occupied, or at least we are tempted to allow someone or something else to occupy it, and that's fear. See, fear is the thing that takes residence in a home where it does not belong. And until we deal with fear, we can't live with hope. And I think this is often why we settle. I don't know how to kick him out. I don't know how to get rid of him, so I'm just going to shellac my fear with some positive thinking and some sentimentality. But see, fear took up Hope's home in the garden with our first parents. This is a long-time problem. Think about it. Adam and Eve, they used to walk with Hope. They had the most intimate relationship with Hope ever. And yet they were still gripped with fear. You see, they couldn't envision a good future without taking control of their own lives. And so what do they do? They settle for optimism. They settle for wishful thinking. They they settle for positive thinking, believing they could eat of a good-looking fruit and it would give them a new identity. They could be gods unto themselves, that they could take control of their future and their circumstance and their situation. Right? You remember the evil one slithers along and goes, is that what God really said? That you're going to die? You won't die. That's not positive. That's not a happy thought. Like, that, that sounds pretty morbid. You won't die. He's worried. He's jealous, actually. He doesn't want you to be like him. So like, yeah, that sounds right. And they looked to this fruit, not realizing how afraid they were. They were worried that God was withholding from them. You ever worry that? That God was not letting them become their best self and realize their full potential. That they could not enjoy all that they wanted to enjoy. Like, yeah, he said we couldn't have this one. I bet it's because it's the best one. You ever feel like that? I think God doesn't want me to have this because it's the best one. And he doesn't want what's good for me or what I would really enjoy. He doesn't want me to be known the way I want. He doesn't want me to enjoy sex the way I want to enjoy it. He doesn't want me to enjoy food and alcohol the way that I want to enjoy it. He's withholding from me. 
All these other people, they don't realize how much I have to offer. They're withholding from me. God is withholding from me. And so I have to think happy thoughts and positive about my thoughts and manifest things. And we're prone to ignore reality and cling to what is merely positive. We're afraid. We are terrified. See, hope's home is occupied by fear. And until we admit, acknowledge, and talk about fear, we will never live with hope. I think we're afraid of actually really being known. I know I am. Because I'm worried if you really know me, you will not receive me. If you really know my brokenness, you'd never listen to me preach. Real talk. We fear for our children's safety, for their provision. We're anxious about how much money we have or don't have. We're nervous about our work, whether or not we are valued the way we should be valued. We're nervous about our family and how messed up they are. And what are we going to do with these people? We're worried about our spirituality. Is this really real? Am I giving my life to something that is really just a hoax? Do you see all all of this is fear? All of this. And we could keep going. We're gripped with fear. I know I often am. We're gripped with fear that so much so that it becomes the air we breathe. We don't even realize. It's the water we swim in. Fear is the wind at our backs and it's driving our decisions and it's causing our momentum and we don't even perceive its presence. It just feels normal. It feels normal to look at a city and be afraid. It feels normal to have a plan to leave this city in two years because that's just what people do and not ask the question, I wonder if that plan is based on fear or is it based on hope? To look at your future and go, nobody's ever going to love me. I'll never find a romantic partner. I'll never get married. We'll never have children. Is that based on fear? You see, it's just the way we think. Fear has made a home in hope's backyard. And until we deal with fear... We'll never have hope. We reach for optimism and positive thinking because we don't want to deal with reality. That's terrifying. Now, church, optimism and fear, or optimism rather and positivity, they are not bad, right? But they're simply bad substitutes for hope. Really bad substitutes for hope. They cannot do what hope does. And so as in our previous passage, Paul finishes this portion of his letter by praying for us. Look at verse 13. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Notice, he prays for peace and joy. He's asking the God of hope by the power of his Spirit to help us abound in hope. But first, in order to live with hope, he says that we need two things. Did you notice them? We need peace and we need joy. These, church, I want to suggest to you, are the very two things that fear steals from our souls. You see, fear never lets you sleep, ever. Have you ever noticed this? When when we are fearful about the future or worried about our well-being, we don't rest. And I mean not just sleep at night. We have to always keep hustling. We're not going to slow down and really think about what's going on in our souls because that's terrifying. We don't rest. Fear never lets us rest. The unknown keeps us awake, and we turn over and over again in our heads how we're going to solve the problem. 
Fear never lets us rejoice either. Why? Because today might be good, but if today's good, I'm probably going to get it tomorrow, right? So I better not fully give myself over to joy because I know I'm going to regret it in the morning. Because even joy, we become skeptical of joy. Imagine this. We are so skeptical of joy. I don't want to give myself over to because as soon as it ends, it's going to hurt. And so I don't want to suffer, so I'm not even going to give myself over to joy. I'm just going to keep living in fear. See, in order to have hope, we must have joy and we must have peace. And what Paul is telling us by the grace and power and mercy of the resurrected Lord is you get both in Christ. He is our hope. See, Christ is our peace. Why? Because he has faced every fearful future and he has sealed your future in grace. He's your peace. We've read in Romans, we've looked at Romans, that he has made peace between you and God. Christ is also our joy because he purchased this brand of gladness that has the audacity to show up in suffering, has the audacity to show up in our worst moments this kind of gladness that is untouched by the most broken and painful situations we could face. Therefore, Christ is our hope, not because he makes every situation favorable. This is really important. Christ is not our hope because you're going to get all of your dreams met and realized. See, there's this lie in our Western society that we come to Jesus so he will fulfill our purposes. The exact opposite is true. We come to Jesus, and he welcomes us into fellowship with him so we can fulfill his purposes for his kingdom, and for our good. See, rather, what he does is despite our circumstance, we can live with a deep appreciation for truth and beauty. We can stand in reality and not fear tomorrow. This is the result of hope. The result of hope is that fear is driven away by Christ's love. Now, let me just end by saying this. This takes time. One of the lies of religion is that a sermon or a passage of scripture is to be inhaled like some medication and you better be better tomorrow, right? This, this has taken some of us 40 years to learn how to ignore the fear like wind at our backs. That's just the thing that we consume that is just all around us. And so it may take time to unlearn. You may have to go to your group this week and just go, I don't know where fear is showing up in my life. Would you help me? Would you help me understand how this is showing up, how this is taking resident in a place mis- meant only for hope? So we should be gracious, patient with one another, patient with ourselves, and as the Lord undoes the grip that fear has in our hearts and minds. The Apostle John explains this beautifully when he says, forever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. But this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, we can live with assurance, hope, and peace. Why? Because Jesus has driven out fear with his love. My sisters, my brothers, what's got you worried? What's stealing your joy? What's stealing your peace? What fear is occupying hope's home? See, in our flesh, like our first parents, I think we're tempted to drive away all of these feelings with positivity and optimism. 
not bad things, just ineffective against fear because they're not dealing in reality, focused on circumstance and not being. So my encouragement, I think God's encouragement to all of us is invite Jesus into those spaces. Ask the Spirit to fill that space, Paul says, with his love and with his peace and allow his perfect love to daily, moment by moment, confront those fears so that you can abound in hope. Heavenly Father, help me, help my friends, my brothers and sisters to be a people of hope. We have so often settled for a really bad substitute, positivity, optimism, just thinking happy thoughts, ignoring the truth. Father, forgive us. It's as if we don't believe that your gospel is big enough for reality, big enough for our fear. But also help us. Sometimes we don't even know that we're afraid. Sometimes we don't even realize that the pattern of our heart is one that's running from a negative outcome, not one that is settled in your goodness, your grace, and your fatherhood. So would you help my friends, help my sisters, help my brothers, help us as a church family to become a people who believe and trust in the substance of hope so that we'll see this hope not just as something in our heads and hearts, but something that really takes hold of our world takes hold of our community, takes hold of this city. For your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.